The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. So, welcome everyone again. And those of you who came in late, Happy New Year. Um, my name is Kyoko Katayama, and Mark and Wynne are on their much, much needed uh, vacation. They went up north where it's colder. <laughs> but I think they were really happy to have a chance to be together and, and enjoy winter. <coughs> and he asked me what I was going to talk about, and I said, a little sheepishly, as usual, I'm going to talk about discernment. And he said, that would be a good topic for the new year. I hope it is. On a Sunday morning around Labor Day last year, I gave a Dharma talk on choice-making on spiritual path. It was a, a bit heavy, heavy talk on the relationship between dependent origination and uh, freedom to make choices, and the importance of taking action with the awareness that each moment is conditioned by the previous moment. <clears throat> we are not passive recipients of past karma, but we are active participants in the creation of our experience moment to moment, I talked about. And then I quoted Johanna Macy, who wrote, By virtue of the interdependence of the factors of existence, dependent co-arising represents release from karmic fatalism. The effects of actions cannot be traced in linear causal change. The growth of a seed depends not just on its own nature, but also on the soil into which it is dropped. <clears throat> the Buddha repeatedly emphasized that the effects of the past can be modified by the present action. So we are both completely subject to the moment, momentum of unfathomable causes and conditions. And at the very same time, Freedom is inherent in each moment. We have no control over past karma and we have full agency in changing the effects of the past in the present moment. So tonight's talk is a kind of a continuation of that theme, but from an angle of discernment as practice of making wise decisions. And we'll explore some of the differences between judging and discerning. <clears throat> you know we are making decisions all the time. Big ones, tiny ones, medium ones, mindful ones, and mindless ones. Who have the thoughts tonight of Shall I go to, go to Common Ground tonight? Maybe we should go to Danton Abbey viewing party at the Riverview. 
who wouldn't want to miss it? I think half the common ground's here and the other half may be there. Or maybe we have the thought like, I should take it easy and stay home and get ready for the week. The new year, new week is coming. It's so cold anyway. Do I get dressed in that, those pants, or these shirts, this sweater? Should I eat something now or wait until after the common ground? Please take a moment to reflect on what kind of decision or decisions you have in your life. What sizes are they? If we are in a major life transition, the decisions sometimes loop overwhelmingly huge. Do I need to downsize to a smaller house? Should I get married? Divorced? Buy a car? Buy a house? Get a different job? Should I support mom to sign do not resuscitate order? Should I stop seeking treatments and go on hospice care? But I come to observe that big transitions and big decisions are made up of a bunch of small transitions and small decisions. I notice that when we learn to make frequent, small, wise decisions, the big ones become less overwhelming. It's good to remember we are in transitions all the time. Just in a day, we go through many transitions, from sleeping state to awake state, from working in the office to spending time with the family, from being out in a cold night into this warm, wonderful space, from being well to being sick and being well again, from sitting in a formal meditation with eyes closed to opening eyes and seeing and hearing other people in this Dharma hall. And at each transition point, it is a point of freedom and choice-making. We can further break down transitions into contingencies. So contingency is an event or circumstance that is possible but can't be predicted with certainty. Your child develops fever and you have an important meeting to go in two hours. You need to write a report and your computer gets hang up. If you're a Mac user like me, we all know that dreaded beach ball. It's called, I think, beach ball of death. (laughs) You prepare a dish for your guests and your dog eats it when you're in the bathroom. It happens in my household. You're looking forward to a nice retirement with your beloved partner. 
and he gets diagnosed with terminal cancer. Like ubiquitous transitions, have you noticed that actually there isn't a day contingency doesn't happen? Have you noticed that? Contingency is not an exception, but it is a rule. When you are on a spiritual path, you come to see that life itself is contingent. Circumstances arising and falling without any certainty. Seeing this is one way we allow the truth of impermanence to penetrate our mind. Yet, at each point of transition and contingency, how easy it is to get caught up by unfolding causes and conditions. And we forget that freedom is inherent in the present moment. And because of that, release from suffering is possible. We think we want freedom, but freedom is so vast and mysterious, we feel actually overwhelmed sometimes. And it's so easy to shut down or go on the default mode of old habits. This happens to all of us. I planned on working on this talk by getting up early yesterday morning, but it seems like every time I give a Dharma talk, I talk about my sleep problem, but (laughs) I don't have sleep problems all the time, but I had sleep problem last night. Uh, night before. So I was going to get up early, but I woke up in the middle of the night. I think the clock says 2.36. And I couldn't get back to sleep for a long time. So despite my good intention to get up early, I got up really late, and I lost two hours that I planned for to work on this talk. And yesterday morning, I also had a two-hour-long sutta study group here at Common Ground. So I realized that I had a choice to skip the meeting and work on the talk or go to the meeting, possibly squeezing out time to work on the talk, possibly stressing me out. Both to be able to give my wholehearted effort to give this talk and go to my sutta study group meetings, it's a monthly meeting, are really important commitments to me. But the stake of skipping the meeting seemed low. No big deal. If I missed a meeting, they probably won't even miss me. It seemed like such a small decision with small or no consequence. Was it really, though? We'll come back to this in a moment. On the spiritual path, discernment rather than judgment is the process for decision-making because discernment makes you in contact with wisdom, whereas 
judgment keeps you in the loop of self-identity. And we'll talk more about that. Before we were on the spiritual path, we, we took judgment for granted. We think that's what we do, right? Everyone do it. Forming opinions about right and wrong, good and bad, appropriate and inappropriate, likes and dislikes, safe and dangerous. Then you take a meditation class or come to Common Ground, and you discover that judgment has a bad rep in Buddhism. If we are still in the judgment paradigm, we judge the judging, and we try to get rid of it. But you realize you really can't control the judgment that keeps on coming up in your mind. It keeps on sneaking up. And this too happens to all of us. You have a co-worker you can't stand, but she keeps on hanging out in your corner of the office. Your partner really annoys you because frequently she loses her keys and cell phone all the time and asks you to find them. You love your friend, but he's, he always shows up late and you wonder about his virtue. Sometimes we try hard not to judge. Sometimes we succeed in quieting the judgmental voice. But then sometimes we feel we are left without a clear alternative as a basis for making actions and without a clear alternative to judging. We take actions out of confusion by default and avoidance, by reliance on logic disconnected from the heart. Have you noticed that the Dharma teachers talk all the time about we need to discern this and discern that, but rarely discernment itself is the subject of the Dharma talk. And the following may be one reason why In Buddhist scriptures, the Pali word panya is translated into English as wisdom and discernment. But in English, these two words share much in common, but they are not the same. Wisdom applies to the profound teaching on the Dhamma, the nature of the reality, But wisdom is a noun, a quality, and doesn't easily translate to actions. Whereas discernment comes from the verb, to discern, to tell apart truth from false and ignorant. Wisdom both informs and results in discernment. So the first thing in order to discern what is judging and what is discerning. You can make good judgments, bad judgments, neutral judgments. But discernment implies the process of arriving at an inner clarity that has integrity 
and resulting in wise decisions. Think about this. Do you want to hang out with judgmental people or do you want to hang out with discerning people? Judging is about forming an opinion based on dualistic notion of self and the others, and it is about physical and psychological survival. When we judge, we believe in the self as substantial, separate, and lasting. Both self and the physical body are interested in existing and looks for assurance for their continuation. Will it eat me? Can I eat it? Will I mate with it? The famous dictum of survival. Judgment itself is neither good nor bad. It is part of nature. That's what the thinking mind does. Let's really not judge the judging, but understand it for what it is. Sometimes a quick quick judgment call saves our life. When we drive, we make judgments about distance between the cars and ongoing traffic, oncoming traffic. We make judgment about food that smells rotten and it saves us from getting sick. We make judgment that the stove is hot, so we don't touch it. It's that there's so much more to who we are beyond survival. So much more to who we are beyond survival. Judgments are made quickly by the thinking mind without going through a process that involves our heart, or concern for ourselves and others' well-being. And it is too simplistic to try to get rid of judgment by self-will. When we deeply understand the nature of judgment through the sermon process, it loses its prominence. Judgment, too, is to be met with awareness and wisdom. Utejaniya, the well-known teacher in the Burmese tradition, said, you, can control, you can't control the mind. Only wisdom controls the mind. When we judge others' appearance, for example, have you noticed how much it is all about self? When we judge someone as attractive... Either we want it for ourselves or we compare and feel bad for not being attractive enough. Then we make judgment to compensate for insecurity and add more judging stories around it. Well, attractive people are superficial and they're self-centered anyway. When, in truth, we never know what's behind other people's appearance. What causes and conditions ripened in how they look. 
how they appear. And it's not our business to figure it out. However, it is our business to examine our judgments, to reflect on what causes and conditions might contribute to our judging mind. Interpersonally, judgments and its close cousin labeling kill the aliveness and intimacy possible in the flow of relationship with another being. They may give us false sense of superiority or security, and they reinforce false belief that we are separate and in need of defense. Yesterday, a friend quoted me, Ralph Ellison, who said something like, you think I'm black because you think you're white. Think about that. I have a long-term, actually year-long, maybe, house guest these days. Someone very, very, very different from me, at least on the appearance and outside. He was a stranger in need of a place to stay. And I have been in need of someone to help me care for my dog, especially when I go out of town. So when he contacted me, contacted me by email, and I saw the foreign name, likely West African, I felt frightened by the prospect of being stuck in an insoluble, uncomfortable situation. Worse yet, he could harm me in yet unknown ways. I felt vulnerable and my survivor brain wanted escape routes and defense against yet unforeseen attacks. I haven't even met the guy. My imagination momentarily just proliferated. The judgments in the form of race, gender, ethnic, and religious stereotypes flashed before my eyes as if they were veritable signs of danger and unsuitability of this arrangement. I recognized them as my mind's fabrications. While Acknowledging my tender vulnerability, I got in touch with the clarity that gave me courage to not allow these stereotypes to dissuade me from finding truth. So, before I met him to discuss possibilities, I made an intention to sit quietly to pay attention to what came up in anticipation of this meeting. Need to be clear about my intention came up. Need to gather some objective information came up. I sat listening and sorting different voices until my heart trusted that the next small step is to meet him with an open heart and curiosity, laying aside but not forgetting my fears and warnings from my concerned friends at a coffee shop, he came dressed very formally. He was very polite and spoke in a quiet, deep voice with an 
accent. He said he's a Yoruba tribesman, a born-again Nigerian Pentecostal, and a family man. He's a doctoral student in youth and family ministry at a seminary nearby. I stayed in my body, paying attention to any pattern of contraction. We talked about his family. We talked about family, his and mine. We discovered he's my son's age when he said, if he were to live in my house, he would treat me with respect as if I am his own mother. That really touched me. Maya Angelou once said something like, we don't remember what was said, but we sure remember how we felt. I was not daunted by our differences. I felt at ease and I felt some sense of connection to his predicament as myself a former immigrant. And of course, that was just a beginning of a long and ongoing discernment process that actually still goes on every day as I share my household with Yoruba, tribesmen, Pentecostal, family person, human being, just like me. By the way, We don't need discernment when what is true and what is not is really clear and obvious. Discernment is called for when we are not sure, when we are afraid and uncomfortable and we don't know why, or when we feel we are in a rock and hard place. Yet, we hear a persistent internal voice that plot us to move towards some kind of clarity and often with urgency. How do we gain clarity on what is true from what is false? Every discerning step calls for minutia of discerning steps within. Soon we realize discerning is both an end and a means, both chicken and egg, a verb that becomes a noun that becomes verb. We see why in Pali, Panya is both discerning and wisdom. Has anyone ever seen the picture of fractals? Anyone know what fractals is? Okay. Um, Fractals, if you've seen pictures of them, they're beautiful. They're curving geometric shapes, each part of which has the same characteristic as the whole. So this beautiful big thing, each detail inside is made up of exactly the same, but tiny, tiny. And it just kind of, same thing gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So like fractals, A shape of decision is made up of lots and lots of small discernment. So let's go back to my first discerning question. 
to go to the sutra study meeting or stay home and work on this talk. How did I decide to go or not? I think no one in my meeting, so you don't have the answer. <laughs> when I woke up and realized how late it was, I had a five-second panic. Oh no, what am I going to do? I observed the reaction. And at the same time, I observed the part of me that was calm. That says, that said, it was not a problem. If all there were, were, were reactive, was a reactivity, then I would judge it as a problem. And as soon as I see it as a problem, then I'm screwed. I learned that expression from Mark. <laughs> then I'm screwed. <laughs> I looked up in the dictionary, but I couldn't find the meaning. But <laughs> it sounded good. I hope it doesn't mean bad. <laughs> My mind tried to figure out the right answer if I saw it as a problem. And since there was no right answer, the mind would loop back and forth. Should I do this? Should I do that? Oh, no, I should do that. No, but I should do that. Maybe I'm the only one who had that experience. (laughs) And I would, of course, feel really frustrated, as I often have in the past. So it was a perfect opportunity for a small discernment to recognize that it was not a problem And making an intention to discern was itself the first discernment. Becoming clear just that much helped to slow down. At first, I heard the mind's loud questions. What should I do? Shall I go or skip it? And I recognized it was the wrong question that would take me back to the habit mind, to the world of convention in service of self-identity. So what, what is the wise question here? So here, there was another point of discerning, because ask, asking myself, what is the wise question, was the next discernment. I had to quiet down some more and listen to my heart's longing. And in a soft voice, my heart said, it would like a decision that benefit towards my awakening and that of others. What kind of action then, what kind of decision would benefit towards my awakening and that of others? Then I thought about how being in the fellowship of my Dharma friends at the meeting always inspired me and roused me to practice more sincerely. And then in that moment, when I had that thought, I had an insight 
If I went to the meeting with humility and wholehearted sincerity to be present, then nothing could go wrong. Unexpected benefits could come out of going to the meeting, even though I would have less time to work on the talk. A wholehearted participation in the study of the Dhamma with fellow practitioners definitely aligns with my aspiration to awaken. And possibly, because of, because of that, going to the meeting may contribute to the talk. And then suddenly I felt light and alive. My whole body relaxed and my heart opening. And there was even an unexpected feeling of joy in that moment. How deluded the mind could be to believe if I didn't go, I would have spent the time wisely. The mind likes to believe that certain decisions or action has a predictable outcome. The mind also likes to believe certain act of act or decision has no consequence. We cannot escape the truth that each action has consequence consequences beyond the mind's control. And it is our intention or the motivation behind our action that makes the difference on the consequences. Even though I heard this teaching many times before, it became alive in me at that moment. I saw that even this tiny decision to go to the meeting or not, I saw that it mattered what I decide. My discernment showed me whether I went to the meeting or not, I don't have control on the outcome of this talk. You guys are the judge, or you guys get to discern. (laughs) So I went to the meeting, vowing to be very, very present, trusting it would benefit my talk in some mysterious, unpredictable way. So in summary, discernment is not a linear process, nor is it a series of techniques. It asks a lot of us, and when we do, we get a lot out of it. The more we put in, the more we get out, I guarantee you. Although it doesn't necessarily come in steps, there are certain conditions that support discernment. First is to remember again and again, our actions and our decisions have consequences. Each action in the moment conditions next though we cannot predict the outcome. So intention is most important ingredient in discernment steps. Intention becomes like a channel that directs energy towards your aspiration. 
Once you made a discernment to engage in a discerning process, slow down and find stillness. It doesn't have to be long. Even willing to just sit for five or ten minutes is really helpful to get started. Until then, the mind's habitual voice is so loud, you can't discern that quiet voice of truth waiting to be heard. And remember to check on what kind of questions are you asking. If you're asking should questions or either or questions, remember they take you to a dead end, away from your truth. A way way to check if you are on the right track is if the question makes you feel alive. It may be a hard question, but you feel alive to it. And there is no need to strive for an answer. A teacher said that a, a right question awakens wisdom. Being able to ask the right question is 90% of the work. So I give you some example of discerning questions. It's always the question could be, what is the question the situation is asking of me? What is the question the situation is asking of me? What is my truth? What is my suffering right now in this situation? What may result in release from suffering? What matters to me the most about this situation? What matters to me the most? It's kind of obvious, but openness is a necessity in discerning process, especially openness towards unknown. You know, unknown means unknown, but believe me, we rarely keep the unknown as unknown. Most of the time we project aversions, cravings, or delusion into the unknown. If we find ourselves being afraid of the unknown, we are actually afraid of the fears in the present. If we feel excited by the unknown, we have fabricated the unknown into an exciting illusion of a known. If we feel confused by the unknown, we project the confusion we have now into the unknown. To be open to the yet unknown means a radical opening, for there is no ground to land. We just don't know. A fine companion to this radical openness is our curiosity. When I take this little small step, 
What will happen next? When I discerned to go to the meeting, joy came up next. I was surprised by it. How did that experience of joy support the next small step in my discerning? It showed me I was on the right track. In discerning, patience is called for. For a while we grope in the dark, not having clarity. Right question doesn't come easily. It comes by patient listening. Utejaniya said, you should patiently watch the impatience. I myself became more patient because I watched impatience every time it arose. Here's another. Do we love truth? If we don't love truth, there is no need for discernment. And loving truth is defined by one teacher as being willing to open to things as they are, no matter what the circumstances. Being willing to open to things as they are, no matter what the circumstance. When we know we love truth, then we find courage to persevere and show up when we are afraid. Each of us showed up tonight. Each of us is here tonight because we love awakening to truth and we sense possibility to be released from suffering. Another quality is humility and surrender because protective defenses quiet down then. In stillness, we drop our guard and life enters on its own terms. The very willingness to ask discerning questions exposes us to our vulnerability. But there's no other way to touch truth. In a way, the list is endless, encompassing the whole field of wisdom teaching. Actually, what is more important is that you find a discernment process that works for you. Each situation, each decision point calls for different discernment process. Sometime writing down the answers in journal is very helpful. At other times, talking to a teacher or a trusted friend could be an important step. Not the whole step, but part of the step. Other times, once the discerning question is formed, you let go of everything and check in in three months. No matter what process you go through, a way of knowing that you are in the right direction, on the right track, is by feeling the sense of aliveness in you. 
So I'm going to finish by reading a poem. This poem, one of my favorite by Roger Keyes. It shows a way to that aliveness. And I also think it's a wonderful poem for the new year. And many of you may have heard it or know this. It's called Hokusai Says by Roger Keats. Hokusai is the Japanese artist who did that famous painting of the big wave. Wave is this big and this wooden boat. Hokusai says, Look carefully. He says, Keep looking. Stay curious. He says, There is no end to seeing. He says, Look forward to getting old. He says, Keep changing. You just get more who you really are. He says, Get stuck. Accept it. Repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says that every one of us is a child. Everyone is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says that every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees, Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Love, 
feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.